Welcome to Business for Optimists, a podcast for new ideas, innovation, and disruption. I'm Johanna, your host, and my thing really is asking just why things are done a certain way. Together with my guests, I'm exploring paths on how we can care about people, purpose, and the planet as much as we care about profit as entrepreneurs. Now, let yourself be inspired by those who are shaping the future of business. I'm really excited about the first guest on this podcast. Carol Tarr is the president of the WomenVest Observatory, an impact change advisor and fellow in venture capital. In our conversation, we're diving really deep on the question of why so few women in this day and age are starting companies and why even fewer of these companies are receiving venture capital funding. The numbers around this are truly mind boggling. In 2019, less than 3% of all VC investment in the United States went to women-led companies. The situation with COVID-19 certainly hasn't helped, and this number has actually decreased over the past year. But Carol and I don't just look at the structural factors around what's going on with these funding numbers. She also shares some really actionable tips and advice for everyone who's wondering whether they should become an entrepreneur and start a company. I really enjoyed my conversation with Carol, and I hope you take as many insights and inspiration away from it as I did when I had a chance to speak with her. Now, let's begin. All right. Hi, Carol. It's so good to have you on. Hi, Joanna. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so, um, before we start, maybe tell us a little bit about your path into the VC entrepreneurship tech space. Wow. Now that one will take us back pretty much my entire life. So uh, <laughs> I will try to give you, an, uh, what do you call it, the, the shortened form of it. Mm -hmm. But it starts basically that my father is an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with this entrepreneurial mindset and um, he's from Kentucky. And there weren't a lot of opportunities in Kentucky. So they left Kentucky. I mean, he was the son of um, a tenant farmer, tenant farmers, which are mm -hmm. sort of aspiring sharecroppers. And so because of the lack of opportunities, they, uh, he and his brothers came up to Chicago, um, I think in the 50s, and had to make had to create opportunities for themselves um, in the segregated city, in the segregated city on the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. But there they were able to make dreams, right, that, that they hadn't, you know, even considered, you know, and, and it was like starting with uh, gas stations and then working through buying real estate and building up their own little south side of Chicago real estate empire, and I was born into that <laughs> side real estate empire, so to speak, of, you know, little apartment buildings, like six flats. And um, I guess maybe the largest ones were like 72 units or something. So I grew up with this um, comfort and sense of risk mm -hmm. and the dynamics of, you know, what, yeah, what was it? My mom called it brick and mortar poor. <laughs> You know, where, where, where you, you know, you were trying, they were trying to do something and to build something and uh, maybe you wouldn't be able to experience um, the fruits of that until much later, maybe not even in your generation, maybe two generations on or so. So this was my normal. Mm -hmm. And when I finished uh, um, university, when I finished undergrad, 
I remember one of the first questions he asked me, he was like, so what are you going to start your store in? You know, let's get you a store. And I was like, I have no idea what I want to sell. I have, you know, I was going to have a record shop, something. It was just going to be just to get me going because mm-hmm. that to him was normal. It's what you did. So I never did start that little store because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to sell. But I think it sort of stayed in my head as I um, continued on because I, I studied religion in school and I studied East Asian studies. So I went off to Japan and, you know, I speak Japanese. And then when I went to grad school, I switched over to Chinese and I was really going to do the academic track. And that's where I kind of sat for a while going into a PhD program until I left that PhD program without the PhD, but it was just time. And Mm -hmm. I moved to Europe and well, I moved to Europe and didn't finish the PhD as a result of moving to Europe. I guess you could say so. There's this there's this um, trajectory there. But then I opened up, I ended up opening a spice business at some point, and I could see there was a need because I, I well, basically I had a need because I didn't have any sense of taste anymore because I ran into an incompetent dentist who I will not name or tell any extra information about where this incompetent dentist should be avoided. But he accidentally knocked out um, my taste buds. So I think a lot of people who've had COVID can understand that losing their sense of taste. Mm. And so I woke to being able to distinguish nothing from maybe green apples and cardboard. Everything was like that. So I had to use the sense of olfaction to override my lack of taste. Mm-hmm. And I went to this whole world of like florals and cinnamons and cardamoms and, you know, exploring this, um, the uh, Syrian kitchen and all of these other different kitchens and the Iranian kitchens. It's just so wonderful and fl- fragrant and, you know, being tied to um, our brain, hardwired to our brain and our memories, it can, it can be mystical. It can transport different places so i had to i basically i did get my sense of taste back at some point and i became almost um uh turbocharged because it was stronger than ever because i'd rewired my brain figuring out flavors and yeah i built that i bottled it basically i took all those wonderful flavors and bottled it and started um uh learning to smoke spices now not in the amsterdam style but in the style of barbecuing basically like using (laughs) using cold smoke to add a layer of flavor to everything yeah and so that sort of took off that way and i did that and i could not find in, in, i couldn't find information that i needed mm-hmm. you know a critical like talk about critical capital i had no idea how to just get into retailers even though i basically hustled my way into major retailers and into hustled my way into some magazines and getting coverage uh, yeah, I just did all of that. But what I couldn't figure out was some hardcore business stuff and how to find an investor and when I needed one or why I would possibly need one. Mm-hmm. So it stalled. It didn't grow. It stalled. And actually, it's in many ways still in the same space because it still exists because every time I want to close it, it haunts me. So like I did close it for a while, put it on hiatus, and it came, it bugged me in my dreams, you know, and it followed me around and I relaunched. And maybe you know the story because I relaunched two years ago and uh, it was October 1, 2, 3. And October 1st, I relaunched my business and my web shop. and was getting orders within like four hours. Amazing. Uh, yeah, like with very little advertising except on Facebook saying, hey, y'all, open. 
<laughs> they came and I paid nobody for the advertisement, trust me. And the next day I found out my mom died in Chicago, which completely, I have to say that, turned all of my priorities in life topsy-turvy. Because mm. it just sends you into one of those existential moments thinking, okay, now what? What's mm. important to me? And then on October 3rd, I find out I got into included. I got accepted into this this fellowship, which seemed impossible to get into. Because mm-hmm. I remember I, I kept apl- I applied to it on a whim, and then I kept getting through the rounds because I expected every email to be a you know a rejection. And then it was like, yeah, you're through the next round. I'm like, seriously, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I ended up meeting you. Exactly. And I was in a state, and you know, I was in a state of flux because I was like, I'm giving myself a year to be an absolute disaster. And to have no sense of direction or purpose and just figure it out. And I think that that was a very good decision to make to just forgive myself in advance for an entire year of whatever F ups might happen. So here I sit today with my principles and my convictions and my Women's Best Observatory, and I'm leaving my, oh, I was gonna say something, I'm leaving academics. <laughs> Which I didn't mention, I got into teaching in business school. So it all in entrepreneurship programs of all things. So it kind of all just comes together. And I love that um, my life is just falling into place at this moment. That, for now. that sounds beautiful. And first off for um, the listeners included is a, a venture capital fellowship that lasts for an entire year, almost and teaches people who tend to not be represented in the VC space um, due to their background or their educational background, it could be several things, how to become an investor, essentially. And that is how the two of us met, indeed. (laughs) Um, I love the concept that you um, explained about giving yourself this year of just fucking up and exploring things. Do you think, um, especially in tech where we have this idea that you, you know, you have to be a total go-getter and you start and you have a plan and then you sort of succeed, um, do you think that's something that would help more people um, really move forward? Well, it helped me. Mm-hmm. I think it helped me. And if I think it would help more people, I would say yes, because I'm willing to do it again. And I wouldn't suggest for anybody else, you know, anybody else, something that I wouldn't be willing to do. So I would say, yeah, if you find yourself completely wrecked (laughs) and you don't know which direction to go in, you're just feeling like, uh, or you feel like you're in a free fall, finish Mm -hmm. that fall. Just go ahead, finish the fall, you know, and maybe like my father gave me the greatest compliment that I've ever heard from him, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was that, you know, I'm like a cat. I always land on my feet, no matter what's happening. <laughs> so I guess he's watching me fall and fail and fail and fall and fall while failing and fail while falling. <laughs> but I somehow managed to twist in the air and land on my feet somehow. And so maybe it's that confidence that I will land on my feet one way or the other, and maybe I won't recognize it at that moment as having landed and being on all fours, that in retrospect, I'll be like, oh, yeah, that actually kind of worked out okay, or for the best. I won't say it worked out okay, but I'll say it worked out for the best, because maybe it sent me off in a completely different direction that I hadn't anticipated. Mm. So sort of a life shakes you up, and then you you just sort of manage to land in a way that, that works for you. That's cool. I read a little while ago, there's this Kierkegaard um, 
quote and it goes something along the lines of that we don't we live life in a forward direction but we only understand it looking backwards yeah absolutely and in retrospect so i think that that's Mm -hmm. that quiet space that you have to take in between and those breaths and i realized this with my business early on when i was trying to push and push and get those appointments and get into certain retailers or that uh there's you can't push or force something that's not ready to happen yet mm. because in my own ideal sales pipeline it's that you know you have to you're asking them at a moment they're not ready to say yes so and as i tell like the entrepreneurs i mentor you know the the black female founders i work with that yeah you got to take all the no's you got to sort through them if they're no's you haven't gotten yet you still have work to do but it's not you know about you it's about your business and it's not even about your business it's about who you're talking to and where they are at that moment so yeah if you go back to them in three weeks give them like three weeks four weeks two months go back Repitch. They won't even remember that they said no to you before, and they might be ready to consider what you're talking about because they've sorted through some other stuff. So it's just this constant flow and flux, and you have to just go with it and take a breath and go do something else while you're waiting for that to, you know, to shake out. As you were using that shaking metaphor, mm-hmm. it just takes its moment, and so we have to kind of. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, go I with love... the flow. Do something different. There's plenty of stuff to do. Yeah, I love I love that. I think it's it's actually very pertinent advice to founders because there's there's certainly something to be said for going for it and, you know, pitching yourself and trying to get meetings and, and all those things. And at the same time there's there's really the skill of recognizing when maybe it's time to, as you said, just go with the flow and take a pause. Um I want to talk to you about... Um, Can I add one well, more thing? Because I want yeah, to say sure. I talked to one of my friends who is um, a, a rather successful architect in New York. Mm-hmm. And I was using the old American sales expression, pushing to know, that you've really got to get closure on something, mm-hmm. right? So I was like, pushing to know. And he said, no, I prefer to think of it as getting to the inevitable yes. <laughs> I love that even more. <laughs> Getting to the inevitable, yes. <laughs> but you have to allow that to happen, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it, it really is a trial and error process. Um, so out of that year, you said, where you really looked and experimented and, and let yourself just be and make mistakes, um, it sounds like a lot of great things came out of that. And one of the reasons why I'm particularly excited to talk to you about today is your project, the Women West, uh, Women Vest Observatory. <laughs> By the way, if you have you ever noticed how um, German native speakers, you know, the, the ac- accent is quite distinguishable, but there's one thing a lot of us do, which is the way we pronounce our V's is always like very soft. And I think that's like one of the telltale signs of like spotting a German from really far away. <laughs> or spotting a Dutch, too. Or right? Dutch, yeah. I know you speak some Dutch as well. Yeah. I do. I speak some pretty bad Dutch, but it's, I'm fluent at it. <laughs> I'm fluent at bad Dutch. Let's clarify that. Uh, <laughs> you're fluent at bad Dutch. I, I feel like you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit here. <laughs> no, believe me, I'm yeah. saying plenty. Uh, <laughs> um, I, women vest 
because that would be W-O-M-I-N-V-E-S-T. So like the emphasis is on invest Mm -hmm. and not on women, but Mm -hmm. you know, we put that together. That was uh, um, Roland Strauss from Knowledge for Innovation. I want to give him credit for having come up with that. Mm -hmm. You know, as he let us run with the idea. Um, Yeah, Women Vest was formed in many ways because I complained so much. (laughs) (laughs) I complained about the state of funding for women and the funding gaps. And I was working for the next women at the time and I had to put together some white papers. Mm -hmm. Um, I support from the banks on this FemPower growth program. Mm-hmm. which the uh, idea was it was it started off absolutely huge but if you've worked with banks it becomes very very small if you know that if you work with, you know how their project gets really narrowed down and your budget too and um yeah so it ultimately became a, um, a program where we uh, it's kind of education for mm-hmm. female entrepreneurs who weren't starters they should have been scalers but maybe they weren't because there's a problem with the growth mindset Mm-hmm. and women entrepreneurs that I encountered time and time again. Mm-hmm. And there was this revolutionary statement, revolutionary in 2016 or 2017, I can't remember because it was one of the summits, the next one was summits where Queen Maxim of the Netherlands said, and this was revolutionary, so quote it, mm-hmm. <laughs> women need to know it's okay to be ambitious. That's it. That's what she said. And that had people sitting on the edge of their chairs, basically, because somebody said, it's okay. The queen herself, who had been an investment banker, Mm -hmm. said it was okay to be ambitious. So she gave us all permission to be unfeminine or whatever our construct of femininity was running at the time that, you know, you should be like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and not care Mm. what happens to my career or to my business because I don't want to be pushy, right? Mm. No, no, be ambitious and be, you know, for me, be growth minded in your um, Mm. um, business, you know, have that growth mindset scale, think about scaling. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I remember asking when did lifestyle entrepreneur become such a bad word? Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but if you're cutting yourself short and the potential to really make an impact, let's say that because women tend to do a lot of social entrepreneur kind of things too. Mm -hmm. So they don't scale out their mission and be as great as they could be and change the world the way they could be. I talked to some ed tech founders yesterday, Mm -hmm. brilliant women who were very happy working with just a few schools, schools at a time. And their programs were fantastic. I think one was called, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say it, the language-friendly school, and she's going to be like, oh, you said it out loud. <laughs> because she needs a nudge. She needs a push out there, you know, to really go on and affect the lives of more children with her approach to uh, multilingual education, you know, a multilingual school body and mm. their parents and how to embrace difference and all the glory of all of these languages going on and not be like... Um, you know, this is a problem. We all need to improve the way yeah. we speak Dutch to each other or don't talk at all. I'll put her company in the show notes. I said I'll put her company into the show notes. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I would love to see her grow. I would yeah. love to see it. You know, and I'm not just calling her out because I talked to a lot of founders who didn't have pitch decks. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. Because, you know, like, why wouldn't, why would they need a pitch deck? They weren't pitching. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you be pitching? Well, why would you pitch? Well, you pitch so you can get some investment. Why would you want an outside investment? So you can grow bigger than where you are right now on your own. Mm -hmm. Right. And I believe totally in the customer funded business model. If you get your customers to pay from it and grow from it, great. Mm -hmm. Get You know, pay for it and grow from it. Fantastic. But there's a reason that some businesses really make big impact with the food delivery, which we don't need any more of. And we're not seeing enough in, in this ed tech space, yeah. which would just revolutionize the way we treat, we teach, mm -hmm. we treat and we teach children mm -hmm. and the way we treat and teach their parents as well. So I want to see more of that. I want to see an explosion of, you know, unicorns in that kind of space yeah. and why shouldn't they but you need to talk because it's heavily dominated by women mm -hmm. the ed tech space but those women do not come forward and get the investment so mm -hmm. it's very small and i have another friend who told me today that she was winding down her fantastic ed tech program that also should be scaled and impact the lives of more children you know and give them opportunities to learn tech at an early age mm -hmm. unbelievable school unbelievable program um teaching teachers quite meta teaching teachers um how to teach tech in cool. elementary schools oh that's amazing and get that in there early yes yeah. and why isn't she scaling why isn't she taking this why isn't it going somewhere mm -hmm. why hasn't the why haven't the opportunities and these are both black women yeah also so that's why intersectionality plays a huge part in some of the things that i fuss yeah. so much about and i have perfected the art of fussing <laughs> <laughs> and the art of the delivery. Um, so to stay with that a little bit. So do you, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things I found really interesting. One was sort of the permission of the queen that had everyone sort of on the edge of their seat. So do you feel like, or is your impression that there's still maybe some form of hesitancy or maybe a, a lack of, of permission that, you know, those identifying as female entrepreneurs or those identifying as, as women in business still don't give ourselves to move ahead? You know, we have a report coming out mm -hmm. for the Women Vest Observatory, and it was on these series of debates that we had mm -hmm. last year that culminated. Uh, at the, well, they were at the EU Parliament, even though they weren't physically at the EU Parliament by the end of the year. But, you know, and we have a lot of MEPs involved. Mm -hmm. um, and European commissioners and EIB was there and the EIF was there. I mean, really, they came out for it and we're like, what, three months old at the time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're very old, but it was time to talk about it, time, time to talk about it on mm -hmm. a European um, policy level. And the stories that came out, it wasn't just, and what we tapped into, it wasn't just about the female funding gap mm -hmm. for founders. There's a bottleneck further up. And what it is is that, female investors, emerging first-time fund managers mm -hmm. for women aren't getting access to capital from the, say, the, I, I don't want to say the EIF or EIA. I was confused. I mean, they're totally mm -hmm. different organizations. But I think it's the fund, EIF. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I'm wrong. Sorry if I'm wrong. But, you know, they, you know, you make applications, and there's one who said the goalpost kept shifting as she worked oh. her way mm -hmm. through the process. You know, who has this, this, this woman who has this fund. Yeah. And it wasn't until she had a 65-year-old male partner oh. that she was able to access. And so it's like, we why do we still, it's in many ways, it's still like you need to have a husband signing your credit card application. Yeah. 
you know, so there, and then there were, of course, the old horror stories of, you know, meeting with limited partners, hoping for investment, and instead getting asked out, and you think you finally, you know, get this, mm-hmm. you know, interview with them, or you, you know, not interview, but you finally get, yeah, this, like, interview with them, yeah. and they really just want to ask you on a date, and they're not there to listen to your pitch for your fund, and this is oh. sort of a reality for, I know it's oh. horrifying. This is a reality for women investors and all the things and the people, the, the, the statements I've heard or passed on about someone saying, well, I don't invest in women fund managers because they're not good at math. What? I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I know. <laughs> outrageous. It's outrageous. It, and it's at this level. So, yeah, you're talking about female founders but mm-hmm. you have to look at the female funders because that's the bottleneck because women led funds would invest more mm. theoretically or at least understand better the market yeah for you know products that might appeal to women or understand the services or you know mm-hmm. what the appeal of it is or that there actually is there are people who will pay money for stuff made for menstruation or something you know i mean they, you know but they don't if they're not empowered if they don't have yeah. the money to spend or to or to invest mm. then it's not going to happen and i also see what we're happening is that uh, or i've talked to other people who've seen this happening as well that these investors these women who would be great investors are not reaching their targets for their funds mm-hmm. you know they're like oh 50 million and it comes out at eight they get maybe pledges of eight or something mm-hmm. i'm not so you get this hyper fragmentation of these kind of micro funds that don't have the ability to make really big yeah. investments like series a level yeah you know, or series, series B. Wow, so everybody's wow. very pre-seed, 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 pre-seed. Yeah. And that, you know, I'm like an angel investor. And so that's kind of not very different mm. from the level that I'm writing my little, what I call auntie checks for, you know, because <laughs> I do the little bridge <laughs> checks, you know, for people who are missing an aunt who could pull out her checkbook, mm. you know, the proverbial checkbook and say, yeah. okay, tell me what you need. You know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the level of investment that I am. I write auntie checks. So mm-hmm. they're not very big, but sometimes they're necessary. And it's just that little yeah. something that it helps help somebody. so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to encourage more auntie investors, please. Yeah, we can, we can talk about the, the gap in, um, the gender gap in, in angel investing too in a moment. I, I want to stay with, um, or I want to explore a bit more this gap in, because you and I have been to VC events uh, or startup events quite a bit. And when you walk into a room, you see, well, you quickly notice that you're one of, you're basically a unicorn there just by who you are and your gender or, you know, any other inter- intersectional factors you might have, the color of your skin or, you know, a lot of other things. And it's it's so weird to move in those spaces I find sometimes when you're literally the only one and I can only imagine how challenging it is to pitch and try to get a fund. What do you think is what really needs to happen in terms of the funding landscape to change this? Do we need more female, you know, just more women in the funds in general? Do we need more, you know, at the partner level? Like what is what is something that needs to happen in, in the space? So you got to get in there think- early. You have to normalize, you have to normalize 
girls becoming women and getting training on this way as part of their educational process to choose mm-hmm. to go in a direction that might lead them to becoming investors. You know, um, the school that I'm, that I still kind of teaching at, mm-hmm. but not for much longer, um, it's very, very male. It's mm-hmm. a business school and it's a prestigious business school here in the Netherlands. And my classes were predominantly male. There were few women in there. Mm. And not too many. And then when they had to choose a profile between finance and marketing, they chose marketing. And, you know, so you can see all the choices. There are very few who chose a business school route to start with or chose the profile because you have to split off like age 14 here. You have to choose a profile mm-hmm. in middle school, middle bar school, wow. they call it here. And then from there, you end up going to higher education um, kind of with things that stem, that come off of that profile, mm-hmm. you know, so then you would have cho- chosen, maybe you chose economy and society, you know, when you're 14 and then that's how you maybe end up doing economics and business. Yeah. And then and the numbers keep going down and down and down the number of women you see. And then the ones who choose the finance track in the business school. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can kind of see how it gets very, very, small very quickly the number mm-hmm. of women who are there and why is this not normal why shouldn't the girls are great in math you know yeah. like early in school and you know there's all kinds of things like i'm glad people the book um reviving ophelia is coming back into um popularity talking about you know pre-adolescent girls and when they shut up in class because they want to look cute <laughs> Because of societal pressures, and it's just not cute to know all the answers, mm-hmm. right? But this is this is something. I mean, this is huge. So go ahead and you know know all the answers, and you know, I mean, we have to tell them it's cute to know all the answers. Like, yeah, oh, awesome. so cute and clever, as cleverly. Yeah, but I don't know. Whatever, I don't know. It's just mind-boggling mm-hmm. what to do with this. But you have to get role models in there. And you got to get them in the school system. And part of Women Best is that we want all of our members to commit to appearances in schools, something mm-hmm. to do with education, where you show up and you tell them what you're doing, you know, as a That's founder cool. or an investor, and you normalize it. You know, you say, this is what women look like. This is what women do, you mm-hmm. know? hey, women are ambitious. Hey, that's yeah. totally normal. I'm ambitious. <laughs> you should be too. Yeah. You know, so like we have to sort of redefine womanhood, mm-hmm. womanhood, you know, in the school system early so that it just becomes like, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. You don't think, you know, think in those terms. So that's what, what's the first place I think you need to, to do it. And, you know, they were talking about role models for girls. So role models also for the male students, the boys, because they will grow up and be making investment decisions. Yep. <laughs> you know? So they need to be like, oh, female entrepreneur, the most normal and investable thing in the world. Right. right. So we just need to kind of shift. We need a big old paradigm shift here. And, uh, you know, and to, to move it to, like, what does it look like? Like, Queen Maxim was a great adva- example, you know, having been an, an um, investment banker and also expressing her concern about the female funding gap, mm-hmm. which she did, because it's disconcerting. It's really upsetting. You know, it's really, really upsetting because it was 1.6% of funding in the Netherlands that went to um, 
female founders. Wow. And we have really bad numbers. We have really, and there's like, you know, you look at cultural issues, um, you know, and like the stay at home, the the half work, Mm -hmm. you know, half career. And I think I was looking at the Central Bureau of Statistics and it's like the number of women who have full-time jobs in their STEM um, career, four years out of, Gra- you know, out of graduating mm-hmm. was not as nearly as high as the guys, you know, yeah, very early on, we're opting out of these career trajectories that would take us, you know, up to the top. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it's normal, you know, and the expectation yeah. is, yeah, you work Madido Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday. Yeah. Before you even have, you know, the whole, you know, other stuff or, you know, um, kids or something as a reason yeah yeah what you're i think what you were saying also with about you know when you look at business schools and sort of the gender and the career paths that people pick it's also something i noticed in in vc funds where a lot of the sort of supporting roles and it could be head of marketing head of recruiting head of platform head of it could be a head of something something um and that this is just anecdotal evidence. I, you know, I, I don't know. I can't quote. You're any. right because I was there and I raised the question. I remember yeah. asking that about platform. Is it me or are there a lot of women in platform? Yeah, yeah. And the answer was, now that you mention it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's I think it's so important that women also um, realize that really the power comes with check writing roles in the funds. Like yeah. it's great if you're head of platform. Good for you. Um, that you know certainly doesn't lessen your your accomplishment there. But if you go into VC or if you go into investing with the idea of of changing things around a little bit, it's important to to have more women in check writing positions. Yeah, decision making mm-hmm. capacity, you know, and that's where mm-hmm. that's where it happens. The one saying, "Oh, I think that's a great idea. I'm going to back it." Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of the freedom behind angels, and I think you're starting to see an increase in female angels Mm -hmm. because of the independence and not having to, you know, work your way from the analyst, associate, (laughs) senior associate, (laughs) you know, because it's like, from my perspective, I see it as a two tier structure Mm -hmm. (laughs) without wanting to wade into too much controversy. But, you know, the check writing doesn't necessarily come from working your way up, mm-hmm. you know, from the analyst position, you know, because like we talked about support functions and yeah. things, you know, and the ones that actually, you know, do those kind of analytical work and work with the spreadsheets and all those things mm-hmm. are different than the ones who have the investment meetings yeah. <laughs> and make those decisions. So when you have the crossover, but yeah, angel investing or you know you can do that with a get together a group of aunties you know with a similar interest in that because it's another asset class right mm-hmm. and you know you work as a syndicate and you can do cross-border syndication there's increased yeah. opportunities to do this and to decide to pool your economic power and back founders that you really like. So, mm-hmm. you know, you think like maybe, you know, writing a 5K or 10K check, which seems, you know, extreme, like, you know, enormous for some, but for others, you know, there's money that needs to be invested, you know, right. if you're saving up and how you yeah. choose to do it. And if you want to take like, you know, the perceived riskier route, 
you can do it in such a way that you de-risk it mm. by investing with other people, so smaller amounts, yeah. with bigger groups, forming a syndicate, which is a one you know investment vehicle, and getting getting started that way. Because that really means something to somebody. If ten of your mm-hmm. you know auntie buddies come together. <laughs> and you know, say well, and put in you know a check each. Then you have a block of capital to mm-hmm. work with, which would be a lifeline for somebody who has been bootstrapping and is running out of options. Yeah, for sure. And especially if it's active investment too, then you got ten busybodies <laughs> <laughs> helping you out. Yeah, <laughs> and making those connections for you because they can help you get to that next level too. Yeah, for sure. And especially when I think about you know when you're an angel investor um you you're probably you know maybe some people come for money but even if you don't and you've had a bit of a you know if you've worked a couple of years and you've had a bit of a career you have experience and you might be able to contribute even just a little bit financially then that that's amazing for the founder like it puts you light years ahead when you have the experience plus the cash and think about who would be the better bet and then if you're sitting there and you're taking, you're looking at your, you know, couple of grand you saved up and you're going to invest with your buddy, you know, your friends mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, you're going to be in the syndicate. You know, you find a lead angel who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, that's always, that. yeah, that's important. Yeah. Right? Find a lead angel. How this works. Exactly. But they're increasingly more people. Advisory podcast, just putting this out there. There's a lot of yeah. material on the internet and you can do a lot of research. Yeah. But find, there's a lot yeah. of training you can get. Yeah. You know? Now, there's a lot of angel schools. Like I went to Baltic, I, I, I attended mm. the, the angel trainings at Baltic Sandbox. And, yeah. you know, everything I needed to learn, I needed to know, I learned from them. And one mm. of them was like, hey, maybe get somebody else to be that lead agent. <laughs> 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 you know, but, um, you know, I think that women are a good bet. If mm. you were going to like think where where is my money going to have the greatest impact also, you yeah. know, like the greatest good. The, be life-changing and someone's going to work really, really hard and not waste the opportunity because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not sitting there on piles of cash and, you know, can take it easy, but are like, oh, this is my opportunity. Let me work all the time. Mm-hmm. I personally feel that, you know, um, underestimated, yeah. you know, underrepresented founders, women and minorities, Mm-hmm. intersectional you know you put them together the more yeah. you you know smash it together the less opportunities they had the more likely you are to get a greater return i think so and even if it doesn't you know the business doesn't fly and you know that you tried right and you you, you know then you donated <laughs> to, the, to the best cause in town <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you know there's there's this often cited um I think it's a case study by McKinsey that really talks about the value of diversity and how that massively increases your return. So it's not it's not a charity case or anything. It's one like good business sense and two um the majority of people we've seen getting funding have been white men. I think it's almost 90% of of all capital deployed in the EU and 90% on average of all funded startups fail. So why not try giving money to a different demography like demographic and see what happens because it can't be that much worse (laughs) yeah and really talk to them and just you know really who's got a who's got new idea Mm. and who has new perspectives and who knows different markets 
maybe there's something to it. Maybe you're like, you know, I'm not giving you financial advice. I'm just saying maybe, you know, (laughs) exactly. We're not giving financial advice. You're just inspiration to talk and think about with other people who know more. (laughs) Just thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You can give it a thought. Yeah. Just sleep on it. Just sleep on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's generally a good idea. I think in life. So, um, I have maybe two more questions and then we can wrap up unless there's something okay. you want to talk about that we've so far not covered. No. <laughs> okay. So I want to... I'm good. Yeah, because you, you have quite a bit of experience working with founders and you were mentioning earlier this sort of, you know, the lifestyle business and not scaling. So do you have, based on your experience, what you've seen and heard, any advice for you know, women and people from minorities or generally underestimated founders on what to think about as they're entering into this process? Like any words of wisdom, anything you've observed, seen? You know, um, someone recommended a book to me or an author to me some years ago when I was in another one of my moments of, Hmm, what am I going to do? Um, <laughs> and I remember standing up at a, uh, an event for women. I think it was like, a, it was an alumni kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like the alumni of different schools together. And it was like mostly business schools. And I was there and I wasn't business, but I was there because I know a good event when I see one. Mm-hmm. And I remember they were saying uh, there was this panel of these like uh, women CEOs that were amazing. And, you know, and I was just like, I stood up. There were any questions that I stood up. I was like, I was wondering if anybody in this room <laughs> could give me the same kind of advice that I give other people. <laughs> Because <laughs> I always seem to be giving other people great advice, but I needed some good advice myself. Yeah. And that really struck a chord. All the hands shot up saying, same, I need the same, I need the same. <laughs> and afterward, <laughs> but that was like the best move I had made in a long time was just to say, anybody like me out here that can tell me what to do next, right? <laughs> so they told me to read um, Herminia Ibarra. Mm-hmm. And I can't say where she's a professor at. It's one of these, you know, high-placed European business schools. Yeah. And she might double at Harvard, too. But she wrote about working identity, and she writes about finding your tribe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that you need a new tribe. When you start off on something new, you need to get new people around you who are going to help, who think similarly to the way you're moving towards mm-hmm. and if you're only hanging out with the old people who would like to keep you where you are comfortable and available for coffee on saturday mornings or something because if you start working on your new business and then you're not fun anymore you know you don't want to spend your time just with them you need to find new people who are also going to be growth-minded business-minded and ambitious in the same way you are who then make that the most normal thing in the world. And again, as we get back to normalization, right? Mm-hmm. Who then make your new goals seem absolutely like you're right on track, right. you know? And they share the same values and the same interests. And it's very important to do that. So you need to reach out and maybe get yourself some new friends 
you know, every now and then we look around and we say, Ooh, I need to get some new friends. Mm-hmm. So it's like to get new friends who want to talk shop with you and want to talk business and want to talk VC, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joanna's like one of my new friends from <laughs> the last go round. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was a good move. I mean, so yeah, we talk about VC. What else do people talk about? I don't know, you know, but that's my new life, right? That's a right. new way to go. I talk about female founders. I talk about you know, finance, I talk about VC, because that's just my new tribe right now. It doesn't mean I lose all my old friends. It just means that I have other people I talk to who are as enthusiastic about my new uh, trajectory as I am. Mm -hmm. That I think is fantastic advice. Just having, I love that, just having people around you who are on a similar path or on a similar mission to to keep propelling you forward, because you're you're right when you're in your past context and you're telling people about oh I have this new idea and I want to do this and that it's um, they might be supportive but they might not always understand it and sometimes it's just so helpful to be with people who get it like you know without having to go into explanations we're like well you know VC is like this it's like no no it's so nice when people get it yeah and I have that same sense of um, I think like matching ambition mm. and you know and just wanting to do something and to make a change or do something different, you know, because yeah. I'm midlife and I do something different and I try to master something new every 10 years. <laughs> so not everybody wants to keep up with me. Right. right. So I don't fault them if they were like two masteries ago and they just want to keep going that direction, you know, that, you know, we just need to constantly, and that's something important to me is reinvention. Mm you know, like the lifelong learning, but reinvention and that it's okay. And I felt like I've, I've done that time and time again in my portfolio career Mm. that's still going and we'll go for on for a while, you know? Yeah. Possible. Yeah. I like, I like that idea too, actually the, the reinventing yourself maybe every decade or every so, so and so many years, because we're statistically speaking, we're going to be working a whole lot longer than you know either of our parents generation and why not have why not explore a little bit and have fun and sort of see where yeah all the different avenues life might take you work might well think you. about it like you know people can't imagine shifting careers like maybe in your 50s or 60s but maybe you have another 10 20 years in front of you who knows who knows and so why should you do it in a job that no longer interests you why would you commit another two decades or three decades to do something that does not inspire you so if you make that shift yeah it sounds kind of jolting at the moment unless you get the right tribe and they're like i'm with you i I totally get it (laughs) but yeah make that move at any time why not why not? You got another thirty years or twenty years or whatever yeah. to really get home and be too experienced with it. You know, you'll be a master of it by the time you're not working anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this is there, there have been so many nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. I know. <laughs> Glad. It yeah. was, you ask great questions. Oh, thank you. So that's fantastic, and I have, too. I have one last question. <laughs> okay, the, the very last. So you're the first podcast episode, um, so I can't say Ooh, it. I ask. One. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Um, so I can't quite pretend yet that that's something I've asked everyone who's on. <laughs> but I'd like, I'd like to start um, 
this sort of tradition in my podcast where, um, you know, often when we do new things, as you were saying, or when we embark on a new path or we have like an idea that to our environment seems a little maybe unconventional, let's say, you know, we sometimes face a little bit of headwind and <laughs> what what always comes in mind to me is this sort of phrase like, oh yeah, when pigs, when pigs fly, <laughs> then... When pigs fly, then this and that, fine. Um, and I want to ask you, do you, have you had to inspire our audience? Have you, have you ever had a moment in your career, especially where, you know, it really felt like it was going to be one of those when pigs are flying leaps of faith? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, which one will I choose from? <laughs> uh... I think it would have to be, now that I think about it, the first debate I was invited to um, at the 11th Innovation European Innovation Summit mm-hmm. at um, Parliament. And I remember one walking in, like, you know, thinking, or I remember arriving in Brussels and being like, yeah, okay, <laughs> how about that now? <laughs> Or they gave my father's words of wisdom of, yeah, let me know how that works out for you. So that's in my brain. <laughs> and I'd already had my speech written, and it was like the, you know, the day before, and I already sat down, sort of the whole, you know, gotten it out there, was prepared, and was getting ready to go to the evening events, you know, from the, the, you know that happened the evening before with dinners and such, getting mm-hmm. started. And I remember thinking... I don't want to give a speech. I want to say something different. And so I got rid of it. I got rid of it like hours on the clock, right? I got rid of it. I tore it up and I was like, you know what? I'm here. You might as you know, I might as well say something worth remembering. Yeah. Right? Because otherwise I don't remember you. So say something meaningful, really. Mm-hmm. Make use of the time here. And I remember it came up with that power your plus one idea about oh, yeah. open networks. I love that one. And I debuted it. I wrote it out, you know, in long form, mm-hmm. longhand, and um, about the need to open these networks to bring different people into these spaces to, you know, spur innovation mm-hmm. because you're not going to get any innovation with the same people with the same backgrounds and the same viewpoint, having the same right. conversations and your club's boring anyway, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to go with you. So keep your invite. Remember back when we had plus ones and we would actually go yeah. to physical spaces what? and there were doors that were closed that, no, that certain people wouldn't be able to yeah. get into and how meaningful it would be to give an introduction mm-hmm. to somebody who otherwise wouldn't be in that space. Right. And I remember I debuted that, and there were these, you know, and it was everybody, like, you know, MEPs were there, mm-hmm. and they're writing down what you say, and Ooh. I heard they did that, you know, <laughs> so they can repeat it later, you know, and kind of, you know, make that sort of their thing, because they're always looking for new ideas, you know, mm-hmm. things that they really like, and it I took a risk. I took a crazy risk. Yeah. And I remember like the adrenaline rush. And I was like, you know, my five minute keynote, because you get five minutes. So this is what I said in five minutes and got it done. And that was sort of a moment where I found my voice. I couldn't believe it actually came out of my body, but I found my voice and I found my what, what I thought and what I believed in and my principle. And I stood, I mean, I sat there actually mm-hmm. and I delivered it and I said it and I took my chance. 
and it went over. It really did. And it made a difference and it like made me unique. Mm-hmm. You know, that these were my thoughts and no one had ever said these thoughts before. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty sure someone must have said this is the most obvious thing in the world. But no, it wasn't. And so I found, you know, so I, th- that was pigs flying <laughs> for me that it really, it was a success. It really went somewhere and it kind of established me as a voice of reason, even, you know, somebody yeah. that could give you some good advice. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led to Women Best because I got invited back for other things to talk about, you know, and kind mm-hmm. of really moving forward with it and the funding gap. And then. Yeah, I got created and I was included to co-launch, you know, to launch as a co-founder. Mm. So I'm kind of just rolling with that particular, I mean, my metaphors are mixed now because you don't roll with a flying pig. But <laughs> Well, you know, what are you telling me? I'm not a native speaker. I'm going to mix that metaphor, pig, flying pigs on wheels that you just push out there. That's, yeah. that's what I'm riding pigs on wheels. inside of, <laughs> like a Trojan pig the trojan pig <laughs> trojan frying pig they didn't expect it but they got me <laughs> i love that story i you know just make any you were, sense <laughs> but when you just when you were talking about ripping up that speech and then the next day going in and just redoing the thing and just trusting that i guess you would find the words that is so courageous i love that what saying something you know say something being daring saying something a little controversial to just go for it and trust that your brain will get you through (laughs) what honestly what an amazing inspiration thank you so much for sharing that oh thank you for asking that pig's flying question because i've never been asked that before (laughs) (laughs) glad i'm glad it was a novelty All right. Well, thanks so much for being here, um, Carol, for being on this podcast. Where, if people want to connect with you or see your work, where can they find you? Ah, I have a blog, but I haven't updated it lately, so that's probably not it. Um, I would suggest checking out womeninvest.org mm-hmm. and seeing what's going on there. I'm just reachable. You know, I don't think I'm one of those people that's hard to find. You know, mm-hmm. you hear VCs say this all the time, but between LinkedIn or Women Vest, you can, I'm just out there. I get messages all the time. Okay. <laughs> if you really feel like you need to link in with me, you know, send me a LinkedIn request, invite, tell me why, and we'll take it from one. there. Cool. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I'm, I really hope that a lot of people will hear or like will check out the work that you're doing with women vest and we'll connect with you um so you can you can move forward with your mission with even even more like oomph (laughs) i hope so for many years to come (laughs) or at least this decade yeah (laughs) yes the next the next 10 years well thanks so much for being on it was really great talking to you for this podcast great talking to you joanna 